Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. It's Alison Savas and welcome to another quarterly update. Today, we're going to discuss the major developments that have impacted global stock markets. And in the second part of this episode, we'll discuss our current portfolio positioning. Joining me for this update is Antipodes Portfolio Manager, Sunny Bangia. Hello, Alison. Sunny, the third quarter of 2022 began with an aggressive bounce into growth equities as the market hoped for a Fed pivot. But ultimately, this was short-lived and equity and bond prices collapsed in the second half of the quarter and beyond. And market sentiment you know, still remains incredibly weak. But it's been the developments post-quarter end that have been even more interesting, you know, in particular the escalating US-China tensions and President Xi's consolidation of power in China. Stating the obvious, uncertainty is high. How are you thinking about the market response over the next 12 months? Thanks, Alison. Uh, so you are right, uncertainty is high. The range of outcomes on inflation, nominal GDP, are quite wide right now. And then along with that, we have an increasing um, tension between the two largest economies of the world. So we do, we do think it's going to be a tricky period for markets over the next period um, and difficult to sort of break through the upside. Consensus, consensus estimates at the moment are too high and still need to be revised down as economic growth slows. So along with that, we also know that sentiment is completely washed out. So the market is trying to anticipate the earnings forecasts that are going to be cut, but at the same time, cash levels are high. What we haven't seen at the moment is meaningful outflows from equity funds, which you typically would see with a market bottom. Our base case still remains of stagflation, but with a mild recession. China has the potential to further ease, even if the West is tightening. As the US economy bears watching closely, the economic data deteriorates, while labour markets remain tight and inflation is broad-based. So the Fed has no other choice but to continue on its hiking path and reduction of balance sheet. The question is, will we see more active stimulus out of China? The slowdown in the Chinese economy has persisted for longer than we expected. <clears throat> and the moderate pace of stimulus has been frustrating. So our overweight to China has cost us alpha this calendar year. The confirmation of Pre President Xi's third term in theory should see a focus of policy pivoting away from reform and COVID zero towards growth. And with inflation running under 3%, uh, because the economy has been weak, China does not have the inflation problem that the West has and should be able to stimulate. From a position of self-interest, the party is incentivized to support the economy. And rounding out the major economies, Europe is in a difficult position. Inflation still remains stubbornly high um, and the recession in Europe is underway, which is just putting the ECB under a very difficult position. But it does look like we have passed the worst uh, period of the near-term energy crunch for Europe. Barring any extreme weather events, it looks like that Europe will have enough gas for the winter. And around, and, and around 10 and a half times forward earnings, the risks in the European economy seem to be largely priced in. In terms of the US economy, do you think the Fed can engineer a soft landing? Um, you know, what we mean by that is hiking rates without severely impacting economic activity? So it's a bit early to tell. Um, the Fed's 
credibility credibility has been damaged this year and inflation has been um, relatively broad-based. So this does increase the risks of the Fed over-tightening, dragging the US economy into a deeper recession than the market is anticipating. And if we look at history, the Fed has to tighten a point tighten to a point at which it is basically has the cash rate above the inflation rate in order to bring down um, overall inflation. Um, and even though we know inflation will fall, we are still off this by some point. The more pressure the Fed hiking cycle has on economic activity, the greater chance we could go into the 1970s styles of a stop-start approach to policy. During that period, um, the economy went from periods of high inflation um, to hiking rates and then uh, loosening, and ultimately we had a stagflationary outcome. Um, Asset prices came under severe pressure. There was a structural derating in equity markets before eventually we got inflation under control under very, very tight policies when we had a very large recession in the early 80s. That is a tail risk for markets today. While we're on the topic of inflation, listeners will be familiar with our views. We know inflation will fall, but that it can settle at a higher level relative to history. And that's important for equity multiples. Let's say inflation settles at around 4 to 5% over the next 12 months. Now, historically, at that level of inflation, the S&P has been priced at 16 times trailing earnings. But today, the S&P is already at 18 times. So, at the headline level... U.S. equities do look uh, fairly fully valued, particularly in the context of an economy that could weaken further. So that's the near-term setup. Sunny, can you take us through our longer-term thinking around inflation? Sure. So I think we know, in terms of what investors should think about, is that the deflationary forces that have been with us for the past two to three decades are somewhat fading. And investment cycles around climate, uh, security are accelerating. So there is now um, an increasing probability that inflation can settle higher than the rates that we have been accustomed to in the disinflationary world of uh, the past two decades. China's low-cost labour advantage um, has narrowed significantly. We're pivoting away from globalisation uh, towards supply chain relocalization, which is inherently an inflationary force. And investments in decarbonization are investment cycles that will be inflationary as they lift the demand for commodities, capital equipment, and labor to build the new physical infrastructure that now the world requires. So if we just think about the recent Inflation Reduction Act, IRA, it has been almost $400 billion worth of investments in energy security and climate change, which include almost $100 billion to reshore solar, wind and battery production to the United States. Following with that, Europe's energy crisis has shown investors we we not only need to think about renewables, but actually we need to think about how we get to that decarbonization path through Uh, through conventional energy, particularly gas. Ultimately, investment cycles around decarbonisation, infrastructure, defence, supply chain security will support commodity prices and input prices over the long term. 
and be supportive of labor markets and wages uh, without necessarily giving the productivity gains that we have witnessed over the past couple of decades. So this very different scenario relative to the recent investment period, which focused on software, uh, cloud computing, and uh, globalization, which accelerated productivity gains, may not be there or may diminish in its force. Governments are going to also lean on fiscal support to support economic activity uh, more than QE whenever we fall into weaker economic periods. And climate and security are the obvious avenues for this stimulus. Mm. Some really, really great insights there, Sunny. The market commentary around inflation is so focused on the here and now. So it's interesting to get a longer term perspective given the relevance to equity markets. Now, I want to shift gear to geopolitics. Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan a few months back escalated tensions between the US and China. But the US took this one step further a few weeks ago, introducing a policy which will limit China's access to critical leading-edge semiconductors and the equipment to make these chips. What do you think the implications of this policy will be? That's right. So we've seen um, a a whole host of rules to limit the export of US-designed leading-edge chips and the equipment to make these chips. With the point being, this is to limit China's access to technology that could have military applications. The consequence of these rule changes is that the same technology is critical for today's many consumer applications. Most leading-edge semiconductor chips essential for high-performance computing are designed by US or European companies such as NVIDIA, AMD, Intel, Broadcom. But they don't manufacture these chips. Most leading-edge semiconductor chips are manufactured by Taiwan Semiconductor, also known as TSMC. TSMC has actively retained its leading-edge chip capacity at home in Taiwan, a strategy referred to as the Silicon Shield which is a clever move. Now, more than half of the equipment used to manufacture these chips comes from the United States, with the rest from Europe and Japan. If Europe and Japan were to follow the United States' lead, this definitely puts China in a very difficult position. And if China cannot access leading-edge chips or the equipment to manufacture these chips, it not only hamstrings the country's ability to keep up with with the technological developments in the West, but it also hinders the capacity to develop technology independence. Which parts of the Chinese economy do you think will be most impacted? So, um, firstly, we do think the Chinese hyperscalers will be impacted, these being Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, where the bulk of data spend is AI-centric for current consumer use around content creation search, natural language programming. But bearing in mind that data center isn't a large part of those companies' earnings or the value of these businesses. Chinese electric vehicles may also see progress curb relative to Western peers. But so far, a lot is still up in the air. To what extent will the US enforce these license approvals? Will Europe and Japan follow? Could the US expand these export restrictions or worse, initiate bans? Will China retaliate? And on a long-term basis, can China develop these te- this technology internally are all questions that we are still uh, waiting to get the answers for. And what 
What could a China retaliation look like? Look, it could be very targeted. Um, for example, it could be directed more towards US consumer brands that have large profit pools in China, such as Apple, Tesla, Nike, Estee Lauder. Um, so, you know, we already, already are seeing a big research in the nationalism within China, which is also happening on national brands such as sportswear. And this could just extend out into cosmetics, luxury and handsets, which is obviously going to hurt a lot of Western companies' profit pools in China. Alternatively, China could limit US access to strategic markets that, that, that they are dominant in, such as rare earths in the electric vehicle battery supply chain. At this stage, we still consider... A, a Taiwan hot war scenario relatively remote given the US and China's codependence on Taiwan or should we say TSMC for now China and the US are critically aligned in maintaining a stable Taiwan for the respect of their own economic stabilities and Sunny is it fair to say that if the US were to escalate further via an embargo on all investment in China, it would be it would be an extremely negative outcome for for the global economy and for global asset markets, not just in China. That that's that's possible. So, you know, we could see a scenario where um, U.S. capital becomes uh, more restrictive for China. What this would mean is that this capital might, as a result, um, go to other emerging markets such as India, Indonesia, Brazil, Mexico's, which are you know beneficiaries not just because of reshoring opportunities away from China, but also capital deployment opportunities from US investment funds. Um, within China, um, also what will happen is China becomes a more isolated economy and capital within China stays with, st- capital in China stays within China. So we just enter a more multipolar multipolar world. Mm-hmm. Now, we've recently had the confirmation of President Xi's third term. The market is concerned about Xi's consolidation of power, uh, this ongoing commitment to zero covid and the fact that the the property sector remains remains weak. So, look, I know that's a lot to unpack, um, but it would be great to hear your thoughts on these topics, Sunny. Absolutely. And so the formation of the Politburo consisting of President Xi's um, supporters is uh, potentially a near-term negative in terms of um, the economy, but it's not also unexpected given uh, Xi's behaviour in his first two terms. The economy um, will remain lacklustre while COVID zero is a focus and the property market is in decline, of which you know both are closely linked. COVID zero saw uh, overall construction grind to a halt, severely impacting liquidity in a sector which relies in the property sector which relies on pre-sales to fund construction. So outside the top developers and the state-owned developers, access to capital has been completely cut off. But the central government has recently stepped in to support troubled property developers to get completions moving on. Look, these aren't bailouts, rather it's supporting completions in, a, in the sector and to, to support consumer confidence. We think primary sales will stabilise between 11 to 12 million units per annum, not the 15 plus units that we've seen over the past five years. 
A structurally smaller housing market will see the riskiest property developers leave the industry, but importantly, and it's worth laboring, we do not see systematic systematic risk to the banking system. Property developers only account for 6% of system loans and the banking system has sufficient capital to absorb losses. But notwithstanding, it's obviously impacting economic activity. But what I think is still being missed is that the PBOC is keeping monetary policy loose. Money supply is accelerating at the fastest pace it's been in the past five years, at 12% year on year, and the credit impulse has turned positive. The credit impulse is the change in in credit relative to the change in GDP. But rising money supply hasn't been felt through the economy yet because of the COVID zero policies the government is implementing. The party is sticking with its COVID zero rhetoric, but it is clear on the ground mobility is rising as we can see this through traffic congestion, higher cargo, freight movements, subway movements, and intracity movements. We are not going to have a big bang reopening in China like we saw in many developed markets, but China will continue to ebb and flow along a path towards a normalization of activity. At nine times forward earnings, Uh, The market isn't really factoring in a rebound in activity or the potential for the stimulus to feed into higher levels of activity. And so whilst we have reduced our exposure to China over the past six months at about 10% at present, we still feel very comfortable on our long-term holdings such as Yum China, Medea and JD.com, which are all strong domestic businesses with attractive valuations, growth prospects, and our stories that are um, more about self-help. And has that reduced weighting to China been allocated to other emerging markets or to developed markets? It, it has um, uh, been allocated to other emerging markets that we like. Um, for example, we have had a positive view on India for many years and we own ICICI Bank, which has been a long-term holding of the fund um, since our inception. But also we are positive on other economies like Indonesia, Brazil and Mexico where we've been allocating capital. These countries have dealt with COVID without extreme stimulus that we saw in some Western economies. Inflation is being managed um, quite uh, effectively um, and food and energy prices are not damaging the household budget. So we think these markets are set up for better than expected growth over the next several years. India and Indonesia are two markets that are benefiting from ongoing structural reform following almost a decade of political stability, which has been so much elusive to the West. They have large young populations, hurdles around labour laws and infrastructure are being removed, and they are beneficiaries of the diversifying manufacturing capacity outside of China. Mexico is obviously a clear beneficiary of this, being close to the United States. Onshoring and nearshoring manufacturing has become a major initiative for US companies for reasons we all know well. With respect to Brazil, the opportunity is probably more cyclical than structural as, lo- as when compared to India or Indonesia. The passing of the election reduces political risk and if the current president Lula 
balances the cabinet with more centrist candidates, we could see an attractive balance between spending and reform. Emerging market valuations are very attractive with approximately 40% discount relative to developed markets in a more interesting political backdrop, better than expected growth, and is one of the largest discounts in the past 20 years. In the second part of this podcast, Sunny, I want to focus on the portfolio. We know uncertainty has risen, but that doesn't mean there aren't interesting opportunities. Can you take us through how the portfolio is being positioned to navigate these markets? Yes, so given everything we have discussed, we've been focused on reducing the cyclical tilt in the portfolio and adding to the more defensive parts of the portfolio and beneficiaries of long-term investment trends. For example, we have now just over 10% of the long book in healthcare, anchored by Merck and Sanofi. We have owned Merck for a while, but it is now one of our largest positions in the portfolio. What do we like about Merck? It's a business that generates a third of itself outside drug development from its vaccine and animal healthcare businesses. Now, these are sticky, long-duration businesses with consolidated market structures and high barriers to entry, which deserve to trade on high multiples relative to pharma. Gardasil, Merck's HPV vaccine, which has proven to prevent a wide variety of cancers, has next to no competition and a long runway for growth. And in their animal healthcare business, which is very strong brand equity, particularly in the animal herd segment. In terms of their pharma business, Keytruda is the most successful immuno-oncology drug generating 20 billion US dollars of revenue with revenue still growing in the mid-teens. We know patent cliffs begin from 2028, but combination studies with next-generation immuno-oncology drugs could extend Keytruda's dominance. Merck is growing earnings at about 12% per annum and is valued at 13 times PE. We've also bought into Gilead recently, which is well known for its HIV franchise. And it has recently managed to push out the patent cliff to the early 2030s. It continues to work on new treatments like long-lasting oral tablets and injectables to extend its dominance in HIV. Gilead is trading on 10 times earnings. It has a 10% free cash flow yield and a 5% dividend yield. Its current market cap is underwritten by its HRV franchise alone. So the market isn't really pricing in much success from its oncology pipeline. Investors commonly flock to consumer staples in times of economic uncertainty. And the other day, you know, I pulled up the chart of Woolworths and I was taking a look at that company. Um, you know, it's priced at 20 to 25 times earnings, which is a pretty punchy multiple for a company that's historically grown earnings at 5% per annum. Are there better hiding places for investors? Yes, in whiskey. <laughs> and as a result, we've added to a business um, by the name of Diageo. Now, um, jokes aside, it's a, it's a global spirits business headquartered in London and has operations all over the globe. Um, listeners and avid drinkers would know um, f- familiar brands like Johnny Walker, Don Julio, Gordon's, Smirnoff Vodka. These are all famous Diageo brands. Strictly speaking, 
it's not a consumer staple, but it is a very defensive business. The company has 5% share of the total alcohol consumption globally, which doesn't sound like a large number, but this is an incredibly fragmented market. And Diageo is one of the leading players. It is taking market share in categories that are growing. Tequila and Scotch whiskies are good examples. And it has strong inherent pricing power. The aging of raw materials means Diageo is facing lower inflationary pressures than other defensive parts of the market like consumer staples, which are feeling the brunt of today's rising costs. It has good control over its distribution network, which will protect market share, and has provenance protections. For example, Scotch whisky can only be made in Scotland. Tequila production is limited to a specific agave plantation in Mexico, this, as a result, keeps barriers to entries high. And even if the consumer does face more weakness, Diageo can benefit from downtrading. Drinking spirits at home is half the price compared to the bar, and there is no impact to Diageo's margins because it sells the same bottle to the wholesaler at the same price. So Diageo is on 20 times earnings. Its business is growing in the low teens, and so while it's not as cheap as our healthcare names, it definitely gives us a diversified and interesting exposure. It is definitely in the cheaper end of all the consumer staple peers, but growing at a much faster rate. But also we have reflected it in the position sizing where it is about half the position size of Merck. Well, Sunny, we, we've covered a lot of ground today. You know, everything from market outlook, inflation, geopolitics and Diageo. And I think we both, we've both earned a drink now. Thank you, Alison. For any further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when the next episode is released in a few weeks' time. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions.